Um, but before we get into Esther this morning, let me just remind us that we, throughout this year, have been going through the Bible and have been getting at this idea that the whole Bible is one unified story that all points to Jesus. And we've been looking at these four parts. Uh, we've been looking at creation, rebellion, redemption, and then restoration. And we've been looking at these five statements. I won't go through them all this morning for the sake of time, but you'll get to see all of these five statements that we've been talking about um, in Esther. But um, I'm going to have to catch us up to where we're at in Esther because we're, in, we're starting in chapter 9, but a lot has happened. There's a good summary in there, uh, but, um, but I've got to fill in some gaps for us, all right? So let me, let me catch us up to where we're at. Uh, so there's some people that I want you to meet in Esther. First, we have Mordecai. He's a Jew that was carried away in the exile. Um, and then we have Esther, who is Mordecai's younger cousin, who Mordecai actually brought up as his own because uh, Esther was an orphan. And then we have King Ahasuerus. Can you say that with me? King Ahasuerus? King Ahasuerus. He's also known as, as King Xerxes. So if that's easier for you to say, you can do that as well. So he's King Xerxes. Um, and he's a king of ancient Persia. And then you have this guy, last but not least, Haman. Who is we, what we know as an Agagite. In other words, um, he comes from the descendants of the Amalekites, the Canaanites. So, um, and he is n the main villain in this. So hopefully as, we've, as I've given you these folks, you can kind of keep the story straight as we get through this. Because Esther, Esther is a drama. There's so much that happens in Esther. There's, uh, there's uh, betrayal, there is overturning, there is power struggle happening here. And so um, I, I would encourage you sometime this week, because we're not going to be reading all of Esther. Esther is a pretty short book. And for you to really get the beauty of Esther and, and how it's written, um, I would love for you to take some time this week to, to read for it, read through it for yourselves. All right, so, um, okay. Here's, here's some things that you need to know about Esther. We're in Susa, which is the capital city of ancient Persia. And you have Esther who ends up becoming the, the queen. She's handpicked by King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, to be the next queen of Israel, not Israel, sorry, uh, to be the next queen of Persia. And not too long after this happens, Mordecai um, overhears a plot that two of the king's eunuchs have to actually kill the king. There's an assassination, assassination plot, a conspiracy happening in the background. And he overhears this. And so what does he do? He goes to Esther. He says, Esther, there's this plot that's happening against the king. Esther then goes to the king and tells the king about this plot. And so the king ends up um, actually is saved, he's saved, and then he actually hangs these two men for, for treason, for plotting against him. And then he records this in the book of, or in his chronicles, kind of like the daily newspaper, things that have happened that day. He records that this has happened. But then, not too long after this, we come to Haman. And Haman is set up as the king's right-hand man, his second in command. He's set above all others other than the king, okay? And because of his position, I mean, this position demands respect. So he wants, when he walks around, he wants people to bow down to him, to tremble in fear of him. But he comes across Mordecai, and what doesn't Mordecai do? 
He does not tremble before him. He does not bow down before him. And do you think that this makes Haman particularly happy that Mordecai is responding to him in this way? Probably not. He's actually so angry, in fact, that he, when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, he goes straight to King Ahasuerus, and he comes up with this plan. He says, you know, there's a certain people in this land that are not following your customs. They're not following your laws. They're doing their own thing. And you know who this people happen to be? Happens to be the Jews. And so he comes up with this plan to, to eradicate, to kill the Jews in the kingdom. And then he gets this decree out. And as soon as this decree goes out, Mordecai goes to Esther and what he ends up saying is, Esther, please go to the king so that you may help convince him to not do this thing. And so Esther, after some convincing, because she was hesitant at first, she goes to the king and she, she actually comes up with this plan. She says, let's have a feast, just you, me, and Haman. And not too long after this, Haman's feeling pretty good. He's, got, he's gotten this invitation to come to the king's feast, like, I mean, this is exclusive. The king, the queen, and Haman. Um, so he's feeling pretty good about himself. And then he sees Mordecai again. And what doesn't Mordecai do again? He doesn't bow down. He doesn't tremble. And so you know what? Haman says, this time, it is personal. I'm going to take it upon myself to actually kill Mordecai. And so he has these gallows built to hang Mordecai. He comes up with this plan. But fast forward to the feast. And as they're eating, Queen Esther turns to the king and she says, hey, there's this plan to eradicate my people, the Jews. And King Xerxes goes, well, who's responsible for this? And she points to Haman. And she says, he is. Haman's responsible. And so King Ahasuerus has Haman hanged on the same gallows that he built for Mordecai. And then not only that, but that he sends out a new decree to protect the Jews and to, to, to actually bring justice to those who were plotting against the Jews. A day that was meant for their destruction has now been turned into a day of their deliverance, their rescue, which brings us to this, uh, this passage that we're in, where they celebrate and they inaugurate the celebration of deliverance, the Feast of Purim. So if you would, turn with um, chapter 9, verse 20 through 32. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from the, their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday." that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another, gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemies of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came 
before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in the letter and what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly ob obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time uh, appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. That these days of Purim should never fail, fall to disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days ease, cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews and to, all, to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. As they had obligated themselves to their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, out of the silence you spoke, out of the darkness you brought forth light, out of place that was absent of life, you brought forth life, and you did this all through your word. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would shine light on this text that we've just read. Would you soften our hearts to receive your word, to be shaped by it? Would you point us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and our desperate need for him? It's all us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the darkest days, if not, if not the darkest day in mine and Sarah's life is the day that we received news that her brother Adam had passed away. And I just remember this day so clearly. Unfortunately, tragically, he had succumbed to some mental wounds that he had received after doing two tours in Afghanistan. And I remember the very moment that we received this news, we were standing across the street from a church, and there was a sign at that church that said these words, our God is merciful. And I just remember so distinctly standing there as Sarah and I are clinging to each other as we're weeping over this news, praying to God and saying, even saying out loud, Lord, can you help me understand? Help me to know that this is true of you, even though I cannot feel it, that I cannot see it right now. How are you at work right now, Lord? And so we all experience times in our lives, maybe you're experiencing it right now, where you just feel like, God, how are you here? Where you feel like God is, is distant, maybe even absent from your life. You're asking this question, Lord, if 
Does, does your silence mean that you are absent? Does your hiddenness mean you have abandoned me? And the beautiful thing about this particular story is that we're reminded in God's word that the answer to that is an emphatic and hopeful no. No, because this story is a a story about a hope beyond all hope. This story is about God working in ways that we cannot see or imagine. So we have hope. And there are three things that I would love for us to think about this morning as we we look at Esther in this particular passage. First one is details. God is at work in all the details. And the second is rescue. God accomplishes his rescue plan. And the third is celebration. That because God is at work in all the details, because he has accomplished his rescue plan, you and I can celebrate. And so let's look at the first thing this morning. What's really unique about this particular book, about Esther, is that you don't get mention of God whatsoever in this book. Again, read it for yourselves. God is not mentioned whatsoever in this book, and yet his fingerprints are all over this story. And one of the ways that we see this is just in the name Purim, the name of this celebration, Purim. Look at verses 24 and 26 with me. It says, For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And he cast poor, that is, he cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. And then verse 26, Therefore they called these days Purim after the term poor. See, earlier in the story, as Haman is coming up with his plot to destroy the Jews, he needs to figure out what day he's going to do this. And the way that he does this is he actually takes dice, what is called poor, and he, he throws them, and he says it lands on the 13th of Adar. Okay, so that we don't talk in those kind of months, but trust me, it, that was the day um, that they had, that had been chosen for them to be destroyed, Right? And this would be a year from when the decree had gone out. Now, the reason I mention this is because, one, it bought God's people time. And two, the 13th of Adar was right before Passover, another celebration of deliverance, just like the Feast of Purim. Well, then the question for us is, well, was this purely coincidence? So I want you to think with me. If you've ever been to Las Vegas or a casino, dice are everywhere, right? And when you think of dice, just think with me, what what do you think about? Usually it it evokes the ideas of luck or chance or coincidence. But in naming this festival Purim, essentially naming it dice, what they're saying, what they're acknowledging, what they're proclaiming is that this day, it's, it's not about luck or chance or coincidence. That with God, there's no such thing. And you see this even when Mordecai pleads with Esther to go to the king. He says, and who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know what the beautiful answer to that is? God knew. 
God had set everything in motion for Esther to be where she was for this particular moment. See, God is ultimately working quietly in the background that put Esther where she needed to be because he is at work in every small and little detail. And here's the thing. God often works in quiet and in what feels to us maybe insignificant ways to accomplish really amazing things. In At the end of The Horse and His Boy, I don't know how many of you have read that book before, but um, it's out of the Narnia series. And Shasta, the main character at the end of the book, um, ends up meeting Aslan, who is the lion, who is the Christ figure in, um, in Narnia, the world of Narnia, right? And uh, at this point, he has just been through the ringer. Shasta has been through the ringer, and he is reflecting on these things, and he is lamenting. He's sad. He's crying over these things, and he just says, I am, I'm just the unluckiest person ever. And Aslan hears him say these things, and he comes to him. And at this point, Shasta doesn't know that Aslan is a lion yet. That's important to know. And Aslan comes to him, and and he invites him. He says, he says, tell me of your sorrows. Tell me your sorrows. And so Shasta starts. He says, I've been an orphan. I I have not known my mother. I have not known my father. um, I've been chased by a lion and almost drowned in a river. I had to spend a night in, in the tombs. I was chased by another lion in the desert. I mean, just think of all these things. That, that sounds pretty unlucky, right? I mean, so, but Aslan then says, I don't, I don't call you unfortunate. And of course, because he's so, he, because he's confused, he goes, what, what do you mean? I'm not unfortunate. Don't you think it's unlucky to come across so many lions? And here's what Aslan says. He says, well, there was only one lion. I was the lion. And he goes on this beautiful list. He says, I was the lion who chased you so that you could run into your friend. I was the lion who, I I was the cat who comforted you when you were in the tombs. I was the lion who actually made your horses go faster so that you could go where you needed to go. I was the lion who actually you do not remember that pushed your boat so that it would come to shore where a man was awake, ready to receive you. I was the lion. Aslan had been at work in Shasta's life since before Shasta could even remember in ways that he couldn't imagine or, or perceive. And right now, this morning, you, you may be like Shasta. You may be looking back on your life and thinking about all the difficult things that you've been through and wondering to yourself, how could God be at work in this and I just want to take the time to say, to say this. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know how God has been at work through the really difficult and hard things. But let me just say this too. 
I'm so sorry for the things that you've been through. I'm so sorry for the things you've been through. But sometimes by God's grace, he gives us little glimpses of why it could be that that he has used these things. It could be that he's put you in in a unique position to sit in the suffering of someone else where you can actually offer comfort, not, not necessarily with words, but just sit there with them as a ministry of presence to someone to comfort them. Maybe even just weeping with them in the same way that you would want someone to come alongside you and weep with you in a time of hardship and suffering. But also, most of the time, you won't know why some things in your life has happened. But you can bank on this. Whether you see it or not, God is at work in all the small details of your life. And this is why when faced with this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Those who are in Christ can answer with this, that I belong to Jesus, who cares for me in such a way that Without the will of my heavenly Father, not even a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. All things, even the small and insignificant, the things that we don't understand, they all work together for the salvation of those who love God. And this doesn't mean that right now you will have the whole and perfect perspective, but God does. God sees the whole picture. He works in every little thing. And he does this so that he can rescue his people. Which brings us to the next thing that we're going to think about this morning. Rescue. God always delivers on his rescue plan. So when Esther was hesitant to go to the king, because at this point, that that would mean that she's risking her life, her position, to go to the king. Mordecai says this to her, well, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, will come from somewhere else. I mean, just think about this. Put yourself in the place of Mordecai, and you've just received this decree that in a year's time, your people will be exterminated. Death is imminent. It is coming for them. And for Mordecai to say, you know, deliverance and relief will come from somewhere. That is confidence. I mean, that is so confident that, that he would say something like that. And what Mordecai is doing, he's drawing from what God has done over and over and over again in the history of his people. I mean, all I can think to, to think is that at this point, Mordecai is drawing from remembering God's people at the bank of the Red Sea where they're backed up against it and they're looking out and they see Pharaoh and his chariots bearing down on them. And they're even wondering, God, did you bring us out here to die? And as soon as all hope seems lost, what happens? The waters part and they're able to walk through on dry land and once they get across, they're able to look back and see that the waters have come back down on Pharaoh's men and horses and Pharaoh himself? Or 
He also must have been thinking about the time that Goliath was standing on the battlefield. The whole Israelite army shaking in their boots, wondering where is our champion going to come from? Who's going to defeat this great champion, Goliath? And all of a sudden, out of the ranks comes this like scrawny young shepherd boy who has a sling and pebbles in his hand. A sling and some rocks from the brook. And David defeats Goliath with those things. These are the things that that Mordecai must have been thinking about. It's ingrained in Mordecai that this is who God is. God rescues his people. That God is in the business of rescuing his people. Because over and over and over again, he's proven that he will just, he will do just that. In the movie, Black Hawk Down, it's about this U.S. military operation that has gone completely sideways because two Black Hawk, hel- Black Hawk helicopters, oh, that's a tongue twister, two Black Hawk, cop- oh my gosh, okay, you get the idea. These helicopters, they have crashed, and they've crashed in the middle of enemy territory, and there is one lone pilot survivor, and his name is Mike Durant. And there's a powerful scene where Mike Durant is sitting and he's bloodied, he's wounded, and with no hope of escape. And then it cuts to a shot of a little, little bird helicopter going around the city and over the speaker, someone is repeating, Mike Durant, we will not leave you behind. Mike Durant, we will not leave you behind. Over and over again, God tells his people that he will rescue them. And not only does God tell his people that he will rescue them, he actually delivers on his promise. He actually rescues them. But it's also important for us to know that this doesn't mean that we're rescued from our earthly circumstances. Yeah, he he, he does every once in a while by his grace. But that's not our ultimate hope. God rescues us from from the ultimate enemy of sin and of death. And and see, living in this world, you either have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience suffering. But in Christ, these are ultimately temporary. That you have a hope that's offered to you, the same hope that Paul has when he says, When he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And how can Paul say this? Because just as Mordecai, Paul has reminders to look back on. And particularly one reminder, the cross. Paul can say this because he looks back on the cross and he sees Jesus and he knows that God has delivered on his rescue plan. He knows that Jesus has left his heavenly throne. He knows that Jesus has come down to live the life that we couldn't live. He knows that Jesus has died the death that we deserve. He knows that in Jesus, we share in a new life with him because he is resurrected. So you can have this hope of rescue in Christ because of what he has done for you. That he 
came down for you, that he lived for you, that he died for you, and you get to share in new life because of his resurrection. So how should you respond? Like what, what, what would it look like for us to, to leave from here knowing that God is at work in all the details? Not only is he at work in all the details, but that he actually accomplishes his rescue plan. This brings us to our, our last thing this morning for us to look at. Is that we can celebrate. We can celebrate. See, in this passage, the Feast of Purim is inaugurated. They're, they're putting it into place. And God's people are celebrating this great reversal that has just happened. A day that was meant for their destruction has turned into deliverance. and turned into rescue. When you look at verse 22, it says, Their sorrow has turned to gladness. Their mourning has turned into a holiday. Their hope has now turned to celebration. And there's this deep sense of joy that comes with knowing that God has rescued his people. Because these, these were days of feasting and gladness, days of sending good, gifts of food to one another, gifts to the poor. This is because they, they recognize that God has something, done something amazing, something that they could not do apart from him. They had faced being exterminated at the hands of Haman. But God turned the tables. As verse 25 says, Haman's plan to destroy the Jews had returned on his own head. The hope of rescue became a celebration of rescue. And they would continue to celebrate this every year because they had the celeb- uh, they would continue to celebrate this every year. And they also had the celebration feast of Passover so that they wouldn't forget that over and over again, God delivers them. And here's the beautiful thing. The spirit of Purim, just because maybe we're not living in those times, just because we wouldn't identify as Jewish, that the feast of Purim actually lives on in us today. And that's because in Christ, there is an assurance that even though evil is real, it never gets the last word. And this is the reason for rejoicing. This doesn't, mean that we, this doesn't mean that we trivialize or that we dismiss the suffering. We even see in verse 31 that, that Esther even made a point for the people to not forget that there are times for fasting and there are times for lamenting. But sin ultimately has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. There's a sense that the sorrow and mourning that we experience actually deepen the joy of celebration that we have in Jesus. In um, Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, he makes this case and he observes that all great stories have this moment that he calls a catastrophe. And if, you, if you've ever heard the word catastrophe, all you can think of is, is destruction and, and tragedy. But the beautiful thing is that, think back on every story that you have watched or read that there's this moment where it seems like all hope is lost and that there is, that, that there is no hope for, for the protagonist. And you're wondering, how are they going to get out of this? And in that very moment, there is rescue. There is triumph. There is victory. Think of Luke Skywalker in A New Hope as his like, targeting system is down but yet he uses the force to destroy the big bad Death Star. 
right? Think of Harry Potter as he goes to sacrifice himself and dies, but is brought back to life again. Think of Dunkirk when the British forces are on the beach and they're backed up and the German forces are closing in on them and there's no hope for escape. And yet, from over the channel comes people, on, come civilians on their own boats to come and rescue those men. And the beautiful thing for us on this side of the cross is that we can look back and see that the resurrection is a you catastrophe. How can we call Good Friday good? How can we call Good Friday good when it is the day that the most evil thing has happened to the most innocent man? The day that we killed our God? Well, it's because we know that that wasn't the end of the story. For three days, there was silence. For three days, he was in the tomb. But we know that he would appear to Mary and Martha. He would appear to his disciples. That death was defeated. Death thought it swallowed up Christ. And in the midst of like the darkest moment, Christ blew a hole out of the back of death. And this is the reason we have to celebrate. We live in this tension right now that many refer to as the, the already and not yet. And this means that we can talk about evil's defeat even though we still feel its effects because we know that its time on earth is limited. Now, even though evil is real, we know it doesn't get the last word. That in Jesus, you can stare death in the face and you could, you could say to death, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And you do this in celebration. You do this in confidence. This is the best reason that you and I can have for celebrating. And ultimately, you can look forward to the great wedding feast when Jesus, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride, are united and all things are restored. When everything sad becomes untrue, when every tear will be wiped away. But the beautiful thing is, we don't have to wait to celebrate. We, we don't have to wait till Christmas or Easter to celebrate these things. We can do these things today. I mean, just look at verse 22. It says that God's people did two things on the day that they celebrated. They gave gifts of food to one another, and they gave gifts to the poor. And so let's look at these two things. They, they gave gifts of food to one another, and they gave, gave gifts to the poor. So, Yes, we could say that maybe we should do the same thing, sending like gifts to one another, preferably not uh, fruit uh, cake or whatever it's called. What is it? Fruit, fruit cake. Okay, yeah, that's the thing. Um, but, but let's get to the heart that's underneath all this. When we celebrate, we should celebrate with one another, not in private. When you have something that you want to celebrate, you shouldn't keep that to yourself. You celebrate with, with others. And it could be over a meal. It could be sharing food with one another. But what about just spending time with one another and celebrating how God has been at work in your life and at work in the lives of those around you? You can invite others to come in and celebrate the things that you're celebrating. You, and as you're celebrating, what you're doing is you're calling each other to remember of what God has done in his son. But there, because I'm saying this, also know that 
there's also still room for grieving and lamenting. That in this life, as we eagerly await the feast, we still feel sorrow. And that's why Paul tells Christians in Rome to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And not only that, they gave gifts to the poor. And again, let's look at the heart of this. Because when you, just being, just doing something generous doesn't make you a generous person. But because of what God has done, by his grace, it actually fosters a sense of generosity because we know that everything that's been given to us is by his grace alone, that we didn't achieve it on our own. And so how could we hoard these things to ourselves when it's not even ours to begin with? The early church was marked by generosity because we have this picture that they would give gifts to one another and they would also take care of those who were, who were in need among themselves because of the gospel, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So this is what it looks like to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up this morning, it's been six years since we received the news that Adam had passed away, that mine and Sarah's brother had passed away and had died. And that was a very dark day, and that dark day was followed by more dark days, more dark weeks, dark months. We still, today, miss our brother dearly. We still wonder why these things happen, and there are still some dark days, but something that that gives us comfort today is that we know, and that something that we've heard from, from a pastor who said this, God's silence is not absence. God's hiddenness is not abandonment. And this comfort, this hope is offered to you if you don't know it, because Jesus is at work in all the small and insignificant details. Jesus accomplishes the rescue plan through his life, death, and resurrection. In Jesus, we have the most glorious reason to celebrate. And we can do that here, now, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let me pray.